Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome to you out there. This is Nadia joining you from Washington, D.C. Hi, everyone. This is Nabil joining you from Nairobi, where it's evening time here. And I think if you listen closely enough, you can hear the crickets in the background. But if you're joining us out there for the first time, a very warm welcome to Equals. We're a global podcast, a kick-ass global podcast <laughs> that's all about hope in the fight against inequality. Nadia, you're laughing. Kick-ass, huh? Nice one, Nabil. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, we're pretty kick-ass, you know. I can come out with some more adjectives if you like, you know, mesmerizing, cracking, super uh, I, cool. Listen, I just cannot get behind this word you keep using, so cracking. So let's just stick to kick-ass. But yes, we, That's good with me. We, we stick to political figures, to academics, frontline activists, really people from all walks of life working on thinking about doing something about inequality. And before we do get to introducing our amazing guest today, Nadia, just about these times. I mean, if there's a word that sums up this podcast today, it's solidarity. Solidarity with black communities in the United States, solidarity against white supremacy and solidarity in the face of just generations upon generations of just such deeply structural racism and violence. Yeah, and and solidarity with those facing violence at the hands of the state. Uh, and in us saying together, Black Lives Matter. And you really feel the state's ugly response here in D.C. with the, the sight of military vehicles on our streets, helicopters shredding our skies. It's intense. Nadia, and, and probably a discussion for another time, but I'm just wondering how you even start to explain that to your kids, you know. But it doesn't sound really like the America that you see on the postcards or you learn about, you know, through the movies. Well, and you know that that America has never existed for many um, but on, on that note, should we get to today's guest? We're so lucky to have on Equals, given his incredible scholarship on race issues. Nabil, you and Max for this one are speaking to Professor Derek Hamilton, who is Professor of Public Policy, Economics, Sociology, and African-American Studies at Ohio State University. And he is the Executive Director of the Kirwan Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity. And I know, Nabil, you've really been looking forward to this interview. <laughs> you know, that's an understatement, too, but... Hey, Professor Hamilton, he's amazing. He's just having such a profound impact on economic debate in the United States. His ideas have been championed by many US presidential candidates, really entering the mainstream. He's also part of this unity task force on economic issues that's been set up by former Vice President Biden, Senator Sanders, that I think many people in the United States will be familiar with. Right. And, and hey, although we'd lined this interview up a few weeks ago, it's obviously a really timely one to have given the state of things in this country today. Absolutely. Should we get to it? Let's do it. Professor Hamilton, what a fantastic honour it is to welcome you to Equals. And just before we get into the serious stuff, I've got to tell you, I've seen you described as, and I'm quoting, the wonk for this political moment because of his talent for quietly reframing the conversation. I read that in Mother Jones. You've been called by Representative Ro Khanna as an intellectual giant who's having a profound impact on policymakers. Now, I should probably stop there, but I don't know about you, Max. I'd have retired by now with that kind of praise. So as we thank you for joining us, we also congratulate you for the impact that you're having. I guess my response is, you are kind and so are they for those uh, nice accolades. And I've been called worse things in my life than Wonk. <laughs> I don't, yeah. So to get started, Professor Hamilton, you know, look, while we arranged this interview some time ago, I think it really behooves us before all to talk about what we're seeing, to talk about the protests or, or should we say rebellions in the wake of the murders of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor, of Ahmad Arbery, and many more that speak to a real forever of endemic, systemic racial injustice in America. 
Now, it's a time for us all to express our solidarity, to listen, to learn, you know, to act in a way that supports the movement. But Derek, if I may, just from the standpoint of your own scholarship, can we ask how you read what is happening? Yeah, and you know, we we let off the podcast with a, a nice jovial disposition, but we are in somber times. And uh, I think it's helpful that we are able to laugh and be human in these moments as well. But I wouldn't say that you've mischaracterized events by calling it a rebellion. I think another point to note is that one might think of these events as isolated, uh, you know, the protest in response to the murders at the hand of, hands of the state, separable from the economic calamity that we're in uh, in this COVID-19 moment, as your work illustrates at Oxfam well before this moment as well, this pattern of inequality, not only in the United States, but across the globe. All these things are connected, and it's a misnomer to think about them separable. There might be matches that spark them at different points and in different parts of a system, but it is a collective system. And I also like the way you phrased the question in reference to solidarity, because solidarity is a key mechanism to change the system, to come up with a different set of realities, a different set of outcomes. The extent to which we can be separable and divided, that has been a mechanism for neoliberal. Neoliberalism, at least in the American context, and I can say in the global context as well, as a, as a mechanism to maintain a system of status quo where you have concentration of both economic and political power at the top, how do you get the masses to go along with that structure? Well, you get them to go along with that structure by pitting one group versus the other, by offering the masses in the United States context, the privilege of what it means to be white by saying, however, your lot in life is with regards to despair, at least you're not Mexican where we're going to build a wall so that, uh, so that we can protect you from them in a symbolic way. And, uh, or at least you're not black where you're subject to pretty much random violence. Uh, and maybe random isn't the accurate word because random and implies that there's some lack of attention uh, directed at the violence, but you're subject to violence or what's perhaps more pervasive than the specific act of violence, the threat of violence. And what that psychologically does to you as you traverse through society, knowing that you can be seized of any rights of mobility through detention or outright um, pain directed at you physical pain. The incident in Central Park, although that was not the most lethal event that occurred in the last few days in the United States, it was symbolic of what white privilege is. Here you have a woman who had a confrontation with another human being, and uh, she weaponized her white privilege by threatening that person with the use of state force to sanction him. And, you know, she was cognizant of it, and she tried to make the bird watcher cognizant of it as well. Now, without that use of privilege in such a vivid way, we may have interpreted that whole event very differently. Um, but that is the key point, the, the fact that she could weaponize her identity as an asset in that situation. I mean, watching from outside of the US, I mean, the country feels like it's on fire and the deep well of pain and hurt. And originally when we, we were organizing this interview was the interaction between the virus and how do you see the relationship between this kind of structural racism, but also kind of class and, and the virus itself? Both of you ask very 
Excellent questions. A pandemic is supposed to be random in the ways in which it might hit a population. Everybody is subject to the effects of a pandemic. Even the prime minister of the of uh, the United Kingdom contracted the virus. So we, none of us are immune. So the pandemic reveals a collective vulnerability. But in that collective vulnerability, we know that certain groups are far more vulnerable than other groups. And that is due to a structure of uh, stratification that has made them more vulnerable. It is not random that Blacks are three times more likely to die from COVID-19 than a white person in the United States. And people will bring up things like, oh, what about comorbidities? A black surgeon general, his response to the elevated rates of infection as well as mortality from COVID-19 to the black community was to stop drinking. Now, I might be paraphrasing a little bit, but that was the essence of it. Stop drinking and stop smoking. How irresponsible is that? You know, and, and here's the pushback on that, on this. Class status does not shield Black people the way it does shield white people. We know that irregardless of a pandemic, the mortality rate for Blacks compared to whites in America is about 50% higher. And some people might say, well, there's social determinants of health. It's because Blacks have uh, lower incomes because blacks live in neighborhoods that don't have as much resources and, and assets. You know, we, we like statistics on this program. If you look at black and white college educated individuals between that similar age range, the mortality difference goes to 70%. So a black person with a college degree has a 70% higher mortality rate in that adult age than a white person who also has a college degree. We know that a black man is with a college de degree is three times more likely to die from stroke than a white man who dropped out of high school. And then we know black women with a college degree are more likely to die in childbirth than a, a white woman who dropped out of high school. So education is not the panacea. The point I'm trying to make is that there is an independent effect of race, and that effect of race rises with class status rather than dissipates with class status. And that's based on evidence I knew prior to, to COVID-19. I'm pretty sure, I think it's a safe bet to say that we will find similar patterns when we look at COVID-19. And Derek, let me, let's dig deeper here because it sounds to us that you're saying something that's very much structural about our economic model that we have, this neoliberal economic model. Is there something distinctly racist about the economic model? And is that, is that by accident or is it by design? Racism existed in the United States well before neoliberalism, but as the country has evolved, you can't separate racism from neoliberalism. R racism becomes almost the tool to fuel neoliberalism. This is not unique to the United States. We, we can look at different patterns of stratification in other countries, but I think the key question that we need to ask is, how does a general population go along with these long trends of concentration at the elite that are obscene? The statistic in the United States that I'm aware of is that the top 0.1% of the population, those earning above 1.5 million, have as much of the nation's wealth as the bottom 90%. So that concentration of economic power isn't just from an economic system. It's political intervention that's also allowed them to acquire and maintain that concentration as well. There is economic and political iterative structures that fuel concentration at the top. So how do you get the population to go along with this system for such a long time without a revolt in some way? Well, you offer them relative status. You say, 
You offer them the property rights and whiteness. You offer them a position that is horizontally better than other groups. So as vertical inequality becomes more pronounced, a trade-off, and this, this isn't an immoral trade-off that is counter a solidarity frame. And, and that's why when you raised solidarity early on, I thought it was uh, an excellent point because it is it is solidarity that we can use in a political economy frame to get rid of this system that we have. The neoliberal movement is in, in is in response to some of earlier social movements. And in, in the United States case, it would be the New Deal movement in response to the Great Depression, the civil rights movement uh, in response to a lot of our explicit racial disparity. Well, as we became more egalitarian and started to become more inclusive, there was a backlash. There was a political revolt from the elites, and we ended up with a dogma that markets and marketized solutions are the mechanisms for making decisions in our country, whether they're economic or otherwise. And I use dogma because it's almost a religion that begins with a set of assumptions that never go challenged. Professor, I... I just finished a fascinating book about the New Deal, and, and it's an, it's just a, a, a part of American history that never ceases to interest me. And the one one of the big jobs that was broadly left undone, as I understand it, was tackling racial inequality, which is why you needed the civil rights movement as well. And and I like the way you put both of those. Like neoliberalism was a kind of response to that whole series of progressive actions. And when we're looking now at kind of solutions to neoliberalism, how do we make sure that it, we get the best of all those things in those solutions? Uh, how do we not go down the route of just thinking about it in terms of class terms or not thinking of it just in terms of rights terms, that, it, that, that, that we have the kinds of solutions, practical solutions that will really tackle this full stratification and, and build a more progressive world? Yeah, no, uh, I'd say when we get to that point where we don't have a New Deal or an economic rights frame that is by design and implementation exclusionary to certain groups, when we get to a frame where we have an inclusive uh, response of economic rights that do not limit who has access based on race, gender, religion, or any other type of stratification, be it immigrant status, etc. When we get to that level, that's when we won't be able to have that neoliberal elitism pushed back against the system. Because what I'm trying to describe is that the ways in which they were able to push back against that egalitarian trend was to use race, was to use a plain old colonial framework of being able to, I've used this word earlier, weaponize race as a as a trade-off of, of growing inequality. So the way you stop that is if you have a, a true rights frame where they're not able to weaponize that, where it, you have a public sector that ensures that everybody uh, has access to the basic essential goods and services that they need to thrive like a decent job with good income, good benefits, like a right to health care, like a right to not be hungry, like a right to shelter, like a right to capital so that you can amass wealth. When everybody has a baseline level of things like that, including finance, in the 21st century, we all should have access to a decent account and an electronic account, especially in developed societies, but even in undeveloped societies, we have Tech, we have technology to extend an account to every human being. That should be a 21st century right 
Absolutely. Um, and then today, with COVID-19, we have at least 40 million Americans that are unemployed. Reemploying those individuals, absorbing those individuals back into the, into the labor force is obviously not going to be immediate or easy. We, we can't just turn a switch on and absorb those masses of unemployed individuals into the labor force. There's a call for federal job guarantee now. Uh, obviously, we want to do it in a safe, secure way. Uh, and we can go back and talk about what it means to be an essential worker and its stratification impacts as well. But we need a federal job guarantee for several reasons, not just to reemploy the masses of unemployed that are that are um, present right now, but to build our infrastructure. Our infrastructure has been in decline for a long time. And to reimagine our infrastructure, that's the other thing. We could reimagine what public infrastructure means well beyond bridges, highways, and dams. We could have a care economy. We could ensure that from cradle to grave, those that need care, that that becomes part of our human infrastructure that is a collective responsibility. And to be specific, I'm talking about child care. I'm talking about adult care for those that might need it, that might have um, some sort of a disability. If we had a care economy, we could be working towards providing structures, including human touch, so as to make, so as to allow people to have greater agency in their lives. And then elder care. We know we have an aging society, and in our patriarchy, we often assign women to do elder care work and to do child care work. Well, if this is provided in a collective way, if if there's a if women are doing this work, it will be more of an authentic choice if there is a public option to ensure that that work is being done rather than something that we impose upon somebody based on their gender. What is the source of threat to impose upon workers whatever it is that employers want to impose upon workers. That is the threat of unemployment, the threat that if you don't come to this job, you won't be able to feed your family and you'll be destitute. So workers have very little bargaining power, and especially in our neoliberal moment where we've dissipated labor unions and other forms of collective bargaining, a federal job guarantee would allow somebody who is working in wretched conditions an option to say, you know what, I have a public option to another job and you can't just provide to me any old wages, any old benefits and force me to engage in wretched work without proper working conditions. Derek, it strikes me that stratification economics is talking about tackling racial injustice, um, about the class injustice we face. But it's also clearly speaking very profoundly to gender inequality, to women's rights, to, I think I, I, it seems inequalities across the whole spectrum. And, and, and we commend and congratulate you for that. Um, Derek, let me just build upon this while we're talking about solutions, just in a, you know, I, I think we could spend all day on this, but let's try to spend just a couple of minutes on it. Reparations. I've, I've see, I saw an article from you a few years ago where you listed um, some of the big solutions that stratification economics talks about, and you spoke about reparations. Is there momentum behind it now? What do you say to those people to say this is not even something for our lifetimes? So there's certainly momentum around it. I, I'd say that in the last Democratic primary, there was a great deal of pressure put on the candidates to have to respond to the question of reparations. 
that's new. But in the United States, if we are ever going to get beyond our race problem and narratives about inequality, we need a retrospective assessment as well as adjustment for all the transgressions that have taken place, particularly along racial lines. Reparations needs as a key component that truth and reconciliation in the United States. Not only would that allow for dignity to a population that has been told that they were subpar for history, for generations and century. So that that dignity aspect is important, but it would change the narratives of how we understand inequality. When reparations was done in, in response to Nazi Germany, one of the things that in one of my, I guess my only visit to Germany, you see monuments of what took place so that a society can't forget I think that's useful. In the United States, we have monuments that praise the Confederacy. Um, what we need is monuments that remind us of our sordid past so as we don't forget what we did. And then in addition to the monuments, having an understanding that inequality is not rooted in biology, it's not rooted in bad, deficient decisions, attitudes, and norms, it's the result of resource deprivation. And when Blacks were able to acquire resources, being subject to the political vulnerability of seizure, of theft, and outright terror. That history has to be told if we want to understand really what, what inequality is about. And then the second component has to be compensatory. If you just have the, the truth and reconciliation without compensatory responses or redress, it's an inauthentic apology. It is empty. It becomes simply rhetoric. There has to be some state response to the calamity that has been imposed on generations of Blacks and how that calamity impacts the ways in which allocation exists today. I think, Derek, when I, when I hear you talking about reparations in that way, I, I immediately is... is, is as a British person thinking about the sheer number of monuments we would have to build in London. <laughs> to, to, to how many countries around the world? I mean, like the list would be, you know, so long. I mean, we're sitting here in Kenya and I think what we did to this country during the Mau Mau rebellion. And so I think that what you're saying would, would really strike a chord with listeners everywhere. This isn't just about reparations in in the US, it's about confronting our history as colonial powers as well. I think it's it's just mm. so much is swept Absolutely. under the carpet. It's not even not even taught in our schools. You know, children don't even learn about empire apart from you know a few flag waving incidents. So I, I agree with you completely. And celebrating the railways, you know. <laughs> And all that, yeah, <laughs> railways, railways, and missionaries, and, and nothing. Uh, you, you can think yeah. of it as a jobs program. <laughs> so the monument building is a jobs program. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. we, we, we can employ the employ the rich uh, to, to yeah. build monuments. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure we can come up with some figures. Uh, Derek, listening to you over the course of this interview is inspiring, not just because of the power of your ideas, but also to know that you're so very close to shaping the political agenda in the biggest economy of the world. And I, like many other people, were really excited just a few months ago when, you know, Bernie Sanders and many others were out there, you know, championing the ideas that you've worked on for so many years. And that gave us so much hope. And now, obviously, you're involved in the task forces set up by Bernie Sanders and by Joe Biden um, in the United States. 
I just want to finish on this note of hope here. Are you still feeling as hopeful as you were a few months ago, Derek, when, you know, it really felt that some of your ideas could could be could be leading America in a few months? And and more broadly, where do you find hope in the fight for racial and economic justice? You know, you guys have great questions. <laughs> I, I really appreciate this interview. <laughs> Oh man, it, you know, they, and they make me want to pause and think for a second. Uh, I'd say I pinch myself sometimes because it, there's a great article that I read about affirmative action and the title of it is called The Problem with Affirmative Action is That It Worked. And what the author was, the thesis of the article was that once you allow people to get into elite spaces who otherwise would not be there, that it unveils the myth of what it means to be elite and that they too can, they too belong. So when you think about affirmative action, exposure of people who are not normally in elite spaces to elite spaces unveils the myth of supremacy of the group that usually is in those elite spaces. So that that's, that's some background of how I feel about being in <clears throat> some of these spaces. You know, I can name some, but I'm, I'm fearful of going through names because I might forget somebody. But if they're listening, I hope they know that I'm appreciative and, and recognize the, the access that they, they have provided. Now, the question of hopefulness. I ultimately believe in justice. I'm committed to justice. So I talked about neoliberalism as a religion. I, I characterize some people that follow it using it as a dogma where they start with a set of assumptions and belief that are not all, and many of which are not grounded in empirical reality or fact, but they're a set of assumptions that they believe in. Well, if I'm describing a religion for me in a, in a social science, political economy context, it's justice. I believe in that. And I believe that many others believe in that. And when we're able to come together in a way where we recognize common humanity, sustainability, I don't think these are pie in the sky ideals. I think these are humanistic ideals. I think that as we continue to grow and push back against self-interested ideas that have accumulation with no bounds as as not being the end all for how we should operationalize society, but rather to consider sustainability, common humanity, when we start getting to those ideals, and I believe we are in those moments, younger generations with their fights around in the U.S. context, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, um, uh, responses to fossil fuels, which is global. I mean, I, I'm, I'm ranting right now a little bit because this is emotional for me. There are protests in the U.K. over what took place to jo of George Floyd. So there's a global movement where people are starting to recognize justice. When when the elites tell us that that there aren't that the solutions you're proposing aren't practical, well, I'll push back on them. I say no. Um, I have the credentials. I went to school just like you, and um, I understand the way economy works, and I can offer you a solution that will work. So that that bail that there's nothing we can do, it's part of my job and my colleague's job to show, yes, there is stuff we can do that can, that can alter an alternative. And it's, it is a social movement's job to put the political pressure and the movement on a system so that we can enact and affect change. That's fantastic, Derek. That was a fabulous answer to finish an amazing interview. Thank you so much for, for giving us the time. Yeah, totally. Derek, you know, I was just thinking, we forever hear people debating out there about what's more important. Is it race or is it class? And to be honest, I think if they hear you, they'll never have to fight again. If anyone ever brings... <laughs> 
brings together feminism, <laughs> anti-racism, you know, socialism. I, I, that was an amazing. I think the answer very, is very the answer to the question: which is more important, class or race? You say yes. That's the answer. Yeah, <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> and Derek, just just to say a huge thank you from me, and to finish this interview on that on that same note of solidarity that that we started it on. Thank you both. All right, Nadia, I'm not. I'm not going first. You have to go first, please. <laughs> well, I just it was a privilege that that equals got to even interview Professor Hamilton for this, and I, I really left this one thinking we all need to do more to mainstream this kind of stratification analysis into economic debate. You know, even beyond the U.S. to really understand and tackle intersectionality in a much more meaningful way. What about you? Oh, I completely agree, Nadia. And I think what really made me fall off my chair, and you know, it's true when I say that, is how you know, this current economic model that we have, the neoliberal economic model, the way that Professor Hamilton spoke about it as being a deliberate response to the progress that we saw from the New Deal of the civil rights movement. I've never heard it put that way. And I found that really profound. The other thing, Nadia, I really felt is, you know, just the sheer power of solidarity in terms of people's rights, and also just in terms of our economy, because solidarity, what makes it so powerful is that, you know, it closes the gaps that exist between people, between communities. And those are the very gaps that neoliberalism exploits, right, to keep us divided. And Nadia, I don't know about you, but I'm just away from those podcasts and and policy debates. I'm just trying to figure out what what does all of this mean for, for my kids? You know, we're born in the UK. It's got its own really deep systemic race issues, not to mention this whole colonial past I mean, how do you figure it out? Well, you know, it's it's hard, but so necessary to explain racism to our children, not least because they will inevitably be treated differently because of the color of their own skin. But for us all, you know, to collectively acknowledge and be in solidarity against the structural racism experienced by black communities specifically in this country and the multiple ways that's manifested and amplified, right, in, in police brutality, which it's not just a handful of cases, but deeply systemic. The vast majority of these cases never even make headlines. No doubt, Nadia, no doubt. That that does feel like the right reflection to bring this to a close, that we, that we need to challenge racism wherever we see it. And also for our solidarity itself to be rooted in humility, right, and put into real action. Should we talk about our next episode? Yes. um, So next time we'll be heading to Manila, Philippines and speaking to the brilliant activist Liddy Nactil, who is known for her work on fighting inequality, debt, climate change. She's fought under dictatorships and hell, she can even say that she's helped bring down those dictatorships. So it will be a really interesting episode. I'm really looking forward to that one. And Professor Hamilton, if if you're listening to this out there, massive thank you again to all our listeners a massive thank you for joining us please do share this podcast with family and friends please do give us a five-star rating on the podcast app that you're listening on and i hope you do join us next time thank you very much bye everyone